I often see people inadvertently self-sabotaging themselves because they have certain beliefs about something that quite honestly, I just don't think are founded, right? There are certain people who believe, well, employees should just be this way, but you know, they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot. You're listening to Stories from the Top, an inside guide to better business development. We are here with Ryan Walter, the founder of Perils Advisory and business development guru. Ryan, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you both for having me today. To start out, do you want to just tell everybody who you are and a little bit of what you do? Sure. Uh, well, again, my name is Ryan Walter. Really enjoy being on today. I am the founder and CEO of Perils Advisory. We are a business consulting and advisory organization that helps uh, small to mid-sized businesses through their change and transformation to what's ever next in their long journey. Cool. So what did you originally go to school for? Well, this is where you uh, get to have a laugh. I actually studied mathematics in college and purely for the joy of liking to do math. It was something I always like going into. Knew it probably would not be my career, but I thought this is my last chance to really study something I enjoyed. And that's what I went in, spent four years doing that. Uh, also did, in essence, minor in investments in business. Uh, came out of a home where my father was a college professor, a business professor. So it was, I lived with Wall Street Journals and Business Weeks my entire life uh, and did work there and actually found a great way to merge my love of math with things like investments. Um, as the computer age was coming of dawn, there were new advancements in the space, particularly of investments and where that modeling could go. So I got to study a lot of that in school and be there for the early stages of that. Cool. So what, what were your first jobs out of school? So coming out of school, I was very fortunate. My investments professor, who happened to be a mentor of mine at the time, had a very good professional friend who was a senior partner at Price Waterhouse. Now, for those who may not know, Price Waterhouse was a predecessor to what is now Price Waterhouse Coopers. It merged with Coopers and Libran in the late 90s. I was there prior to that merger. I went into what was a burgeoning field called management consulting. It really hadn't established itself as much. There was some legacy work in there, but what I would do is go out and work with different organizations of all sizes helping them through major process changes, as well as leveraging what was then new technology, ERP technology, enterprise resource planning. So everything from human resources, finance, supply chain management, and so forth would help them through those major shifts as they were looking to improve how they worked. That's really where I started. And then I also became the staff consultant for that global senior partner as he grew a business from 1 million to 5 billion. So I had a front row seat to see how a service business grew, uh, move forward, build itself on relationships. So that's kind of where everything started for me uh, coming out of school. So what what attracted you to that consulting type of role? Was that something that you got put into or were you looking to do that type of work? Honestly, I had no idea what it was when I got into it. It was, and I'll, you know, I'll throw that out there. It sounded interesting, didn't know it had even existed. I'll admit, back in my day, coming out of school with a mathematics degree, they said you could do one of two things. You could be a teacher or an actuary. Teaching just, while it's a very noble craft, 
didn't have that level of interest for me. And actuaries basically study bad things happening all the time. And that wasn't something I wanted to spend my time doing. So I didn't know where I was going to go. I was kind of aimless. When I went in and first interviewed for the position, when I was connected to the partner, I started to learn more about, though, what it was. And it was about that problem solving for organizations. And I really enjoyed that. Probably at the heart of my love of mathematics is the problem solving side of it all. And you got to go in and learn things from the ground up and figure out how you could help them through these massive changes and transformations. So when did you start to branch out and do your own consulting thing? I've always had a bit of an entrepreneurial bug. I started my own real estate investment company and vacation investment company about 15 years ago. That was my first foray into that. Still was working a corporate job at that time. About five years ago, I finished up. I was the head of a fintech organization, which basically sold banking software and finished that up per my run and was facing a time where I was considering what do I do next? I had the opportunity to pursue what I loved, which was helping companies with these massive change or transformations, helping great organizations through that. I felt small and mid-sized businesses weren't being well represented or weren't getting the services that could help them. I felt I had 25 plus years of experience running businesses that I could bring to the table. And that's where Parallels Advisory came from. I actually founded it from there. I wanted to also prove to myself and my children that at any time in life, you can take a risk and try something new. I thought that was important to me. And quite honestly, I was on the road a lot up to that. I was flying all over the globe. And I wanted to spend those last few years when my family was home around them more. So I had an opportunity to find the best of all worlds, doing the work I loved and was passionate about, and get more time with my family and save some bad backs from uh, poor airline seats. So as you were starting this up, did you jump right into it full time or did you have to ease into it with kind of like a part time thing? Well, I jumped in full time because I was very fortunate coming out of running the fintech that I had a long runway uh, to choose from. And I know I'm very single threaded. I kind of can focus on one thing and I'll do well. If I try to do a lot of different things, I don't do them all very well. So I started and it was in some ways part time because you don't get work right away. I might have one client and then I'm still working on growing and building the business up. I spent a lot of my time structuring and formulating the business, what was our messaging, testing that out. And I would say it was about a six to nine month window until I really got that down tight. I had a few clients early on, but it was about six to nine months until I would say I really had a full book of business running. So yeah, can you expand on, so in those times when you don't have a lot of clients, so maybe you have more free time, what did you focus your time on? That's a great question. And it's one that can become a very slippery slope if you don't pay attention to it right. I've always tried to make sure I'm allocating time to business development. Now, in my world, business development isn't about ads per se. It's about building strong relationships, having genuine networks, being able to tell your story. I tried to make sure I continued to strengthen my networks, my relationships. But then I also made sure I could tell the story. So I would go back 
document the work we had done, being able to give case studies. And I, you know, as jobs would finish, let's put that together. Let's get quotations from people regarding the results and what we had done. I would then double down on going to networking meetings or meeting with people, probably bad for my waistline because I had a lot more lunches during that time, but it's also a great way. And I think in that line of work, you have to understand there's a wave, right? There's this sort of up and down and ebb and flow. And during the busy times, that's where you're earning more. During the ebbs, you have to um, spend that time wisely to make sure you're really bolstering and building up for the future. So what was your strategy when you created the branding for Parallels Advisory? <laughs> so Parallels Advisory, the name actually means two things. Parallels is a nautical term for the ring on a sail. And I really liked that imagery because it, it signified what I was trying to do, which is provide some guidance while you look to move forward. You obviously still would have the freedom of mo mo movement to do that, but also give you some guardrails and, and help out that way. The secondary meaning, and this was kind of more of an homage to my family, since I was doing this for my family, was uh, my my children are huge Harry Potter fans. They've grown up now a little more, so a little less uh, focused on Harry Potter. But the the all the letters in perils are the beginning of spells in Harry Potter that... Um, relate to something we do. So Lumos, the, one of the L's in perils, relates to lightning up or enlightening. And that's some of the things we do, Protego for protect and so forth. So each of the letters actually represents a spell in Harry Potter. Do you tell that to clients? It's actually something, if they ask, I do. Some people may wonder why I'm focused on Harry Potter. Uh, they may not be interested, but it's also on the website. So if you go to the website, we actually explain what each thing means. We have a a little picture up of the name and uh it is there and it's public so anyone who wants to read it has the ability to go and check it out good so when you were initially building that book of business did you have clients you had known from your corporate career that you kind of went back to and asked if you might have help you can give them or how was there any relationships that you had established you were able to work into the new business no, funny enough, I jumped off the ledge feet first, not knowing where I was going to land. Because my background was much more global in nature, I would have been better off starting something up in London or Paris because I knew more people there than in this area. So I really didn't have someone I could go to to find work with. Now, I had great relationships and people I could contact locally where I could reach out for advice and ask them for feedback or ask them if there's anyone they think I should connect with but not to the level where I could say, oh, I'm doing something like this, and maybe I got a little bit of work from that. It was definitely starting from square one when it came to finding any new work. I wasn't really able to leverage a relationship directly. That being said, though, some of my relationships were wonderful. I know some great executive recruiters or in some other spaces, and they may have had an example pop up once they knew about it, and they would put me in contact with someone. So I've met several CEOs that way, found a little bit of work that way. So I would say a step or two down the path, having known those folks, but nothing right away where I could just kind of go in and someone said, yeah, we got this project for you. Come right on in. This is what we're looking for help with. So I have a question. When you're meeting with a new client, um, how do you go about convincing them that you have the expertise to advise them in their business? I mean, really... 
the role of an advisor is a very, I mean, you kind of have to submit to the authority of that advisor. So how do you position yourself that way? I think it starts with understanding the right client profile I'm looking to work with, because that kind of sets the stage, right? Um, I don't go and try to convince someone they need me, right? I, that's not how I go f forth with something. To me, I'm usually put in contact with people who are struggling, have challenges, are looking for help and are looking for guidance or a certain kind of help. And I think that's the start, right? I mean, it's like going back to any of those sales uh, instructions were given, right? The ideal client is someone who absolutely needs the service you have and knows who you are and wants to work with you. That's the client you want to find. And then you can work out from there. Same thing in this case. But then when I would go in and talk with them, I tend to find it always helps starting by understanding what they're trying to accomplish. And it's not so much that I have the answer because I don't go in promising an answer. You're, I'm not going to tell you, here's what you do. And this is what goes on. It's like a trainer who works out with you. They're not going to lift the weights for you, but they're going to understand your goals and they're going to know the shortcuts or the things you can do to avoid getting hurt when you're working out or whatever you're doing to help you get to whatever physical shape you're looking to get into. That's really what I'm looking to do with someone. So it's those organizations who want that guidance, but so they can take control of the process and want someone who can shortcut the process, right? So sometimes I'm able to say, well, instead of having to spend 40 hours figuring this out, we probably can talk about it in 15 minutes, get you to a point where you want to go and they save that time. That's what I find when I'm talking to folks and I explain that's how we do it and that's the process. Those are the folks I end up working with. Those are great relationships. They're rarely give and take. We support each other through it. And they're very active participants. And that's how I, you know, really find and work with them. And that's part of the reason why I love doing what I do. I never sell. I've never had to sell myself at any point. Uh, if we talk, you like what you hear, great. If not, that's awesome too. I want you to find the right person. And that's been a really fulfilling part of this journey. I want to jump back to your mentor who you got to watch take a million dollar business to a billion dollar business. That must have been the masterclass in business development. What all did you get to see him doing? What what kind of problems did he have at the start? And what were his strategies to go that whatever thousand X scale it is? Yeah. So it's interesting, right? When you're going through it, you don't always know you're going through it. You wish you'd pay more attention, but I definitely took some lessons from that. I think one was not everyone believed in what he was doing. So you have to spend time building supporters and he would work with that. Then as he was growing, you had to get your converted, your people who, particularly in a partnership model like Price Waterhouse, who would be your partners who would be out there selling and looking for that work. So you really had to build strong relationships and build engagement there. So they felt they were supported through the process and they could use that to develop business. The other important thing was very strong systems. We had a very deep and wide set of processes and systems to help people sell work, know what to look for, bid on work. Once they were in there, incredibly strong knowledge management. I mean, we were doing knowledge management in Lotus Notes back in the mid 90s, long before anybody was talking about the internet and what you did online on web pages. And so every job we did, we had notes and things you could go back on 
to make the process that much easier. And that's really where you start building in growth and scale when you make it repeatable. And every project's different, but you still can see trends and you can see models that you're able to follow. And I think those things really helps. And quite honestly, he never slept. So I'm not going to say that's perhaps the best <laughs> model to go through because we all need to look after our health. But he was constantly busy and it was never about him and what was being accomplished. It was about how he supported everyone else being successful. I think he knew that. And he had a background. He came out of the Naval Academy. He was a uh, f you know flight ace went to Miramar, Top Gun, uh, flew there. And I think learned a lot of those leadership skills out of the Navy. And so applied a lot of that into what he was doing. Very interesting. <clears throat> yeah, I'm curious about how you said that you took notes on every job that you did so you could go back and learn from them. Uh, what kind of notes were you taking on each job? So when you do these kinds of initiatives, they're, they can be two year long projects, right? And it's everywhere from the beginning where you assess what is going on and determining what you do to developing a plan to then executing on that plan. So we'd have everywhere from how do you bid on a job, all the different bids we did, what were those Excel documents we used to calculate what you needed to, okay, when you're now going out to look to build a project plan, where do you start? What should you be doing? How do you engage stakeholders? All of those kind of things. So Everyone didn't have to learn it on their own each time they're in. You had a place you could start with to reference. Oh, you're doing something in the oil and gas industry. Well, here's eight examples of what we went through and what we thought about. So maybe you won't miss out on something when you go and do that. Everything through the deliverables that would be handed out to technical schematics, right? How is the technology set up? How do we deploy it? Anytime you're doing large systems deployment, particularly then, it wasn't like it is now. I mean, you're talking days of downtime. You're talking everything's in a data center somewhere. It's not really in the cloud. And it's not like everything interconnected. So these were massive things. So how do you handle data? How do you handle a new system coming up? What does it mean to shut down a factory and then move everyone onto there? When you can capture what that's like in the experience and someone then has that ability to reference that, you're, one, helping them avoid the problems they were they could run into. And two, they go from something that might take them a month to figure out to maybe they can do it in a week. And I think that's really what helped. And that's where a lot of that information got used. So you could look back at the past and see yes. like the successes and the failures of past projects and use yes. that to advise your next, your current job. Or and the these are structured projects, right? And that was also in a day or an age where they were looking for best practices. Mm -hmm. These were organizations that were changing technology was really moving forward at lightning pace. What does that mean for us? How do we adapt? Well, how do you know about your best practices? It's what you've learned from. It's what you've done before. And how can you apply that to the future? So you're right. It was absolutely being able to have that go back and then mix that with whatever secret sauce you and your project team could bring in to really maximize the result for that client. Were there mergers or acquisitions in part of his scaling strategy? <laughs> Yes, it didn't happen, but yes. So, and then there was the big merger that happened with Coopers and Libran. So we actually looked at two potential consulting practices, and these were large, you're talking billion dollar consulting practices. Uh, I actually participated in one of the M&A discussions and we even had golf towels made up for it. I still have the golf towel from 25 years ago that for a deal that never went through, 
and we were looking at, you know, can they augment and add to a part of our business maybe we don't have or we needed to strengthen or a growing trend, right? We were getting into the hot e-commerce topic at that late 90s was e everything was about e-commerce and the four box model and you name it. And for those of us it was that it was newer to finding an organization that might have that, which was a natural add on. Now, that didn't go through for one reason or the other, but we lived through that. And that was definitely the way. And smaller acquisitions would happen where they would acquire niche uh, partners who might provide a very unique industry skill. Uh, maybe they're great in logistics and you're starting to take on more supply chain clients. It'll be great to kind of add that in. That's a market we want to go into. Then we went through the massive merger when Coopers and Limebird and Price Waterhouse came together, and that was two 60,000-person organizations coming together one day. We had a, for those of us in this region, we had a big uh, merger day where about 3,000 people in Philadelphia walked from the offices down to um, the convention center, followed by the Mummers, and the then mayor came in and congratulated us, and our partners rode in on bicycles built for two dressed like they were going to go sing in a barbershop quartet. Interesting theater, I guess. Now, that was interesting coming through and it figured that all out. How do we make this work? Where are the strengths of each organization? How do we go from there? And if you look, I mean, 20 plus years later, PricewaterhouseCoopers is probably one of the top two or three consulting advisory tax practices in the world. And they've made their way through that. But there were definitely those processes we had to work through to figure out what are the strengths of the organizations and how do we make this big behemoth work. Yeah. How did you guys go about tackling that scale of a project? <laughs> uh, like eating an elephant one bite at a time. It's not something you just say, we're going to solve it. You begin by looking at capabilities and strengths. We started looking at different practice areas. Um, where do we have overlap? Where did we have single sources? And that might be easier to do. Um, you also begin looking at some of the more centralized things like systems. You don't need two email systems. You don't need two payroll systems. How do we move everyone onto one? You begin, I think, in those cases, working at the core and consolidating that to make it easier for everyone to work as one team. If you, if we keep, if you're on one email system, I'm on another and you're getting paid from this and I'm getting paid monthly, then it's hard to feel like you're in one company. So you start doing that to really build that culture of one. And then you begin ticking away. And look, three years in, there were still some things that operated and they would call them old co CNL and old co PW because they still operated like they used to, because something that big, you can't change overnight, right? It's like, you know, you can't stop a train in five feet. It takes two miles or whatever to stop a train once it's moving. So you, you take those, you focus on the priorities, where can we get the greatest benefit to begin? And you, you chip away at it. So back with Paros, when you started deciding you were going to go back out and help small, medium businesses, did you have a outline strategy of how you were going to help businesses through coaching or is it kind of case by case? Like, what did you want to do to make differentiate yourself from other coaches and services? Well, I, I like your point about differentiation because that's important. Firmly, I don't believe that I have the model and I don't think that I think it's important to say there's not an answer out there because every business is different. I think what made me different was that beyond just coming out and helping someone through, like I'm willing to get my hands dirty. I'll go in and do some of that work. I have experience in that. Um, I'll work with them through certain things. So a lot of business owners, you know, everything that comes up is something new. 
It's daunting. It's a challenge. So not only just the great idea, but let's help you work through that. So I was definitely kind of in the foxhole with them. And I think that was important. Uh, two, I was competitive. It was just me. I didn't have to build out a a consulting organization that, you know, really only a third of the cost has to cover me. When you do that, um, it gets much more pricey. And so I think that's important. And I could leverage, you know, 25 years of experience. I think a lot of people come in, perhaps haven't had the experience running organizations. Um, and that was important. My normal model to start with is discovery. Let's figure out what you're trying to accomplish. Let's figure out what you're looking to do. That to me is the most important thing. If you go in assuming and not asking those questions, you know, if I was talking to you guys, I would say, what do you want to be in five years? What are you hoping this turns into? And how do we help you achieve that? Because if you don't start there, sure, I can develop any model in the world for anyone. You may be miserable two years down the road. That's not something anyone wants. And I think that's important. And then I think the second stage is helping them see that path to get there without feeling overwhelmed. Because nobody can just drop it all and stop business. And now we're going to go take on this great new project. We still have a business to run and things to do. So how are we going to do that? And what's the right order? And how do we handle that incrementally? How do we pull that puzzle together? And I think that's kind of my secret sauce, along with the way of what I bring in to the table that's helped me along the way. I want to know, what are some of the questions that you've found that really start the conversation to uncovering the problems that these businesses need to fix? I'll tend to start, and I would say it's multiple levels. I'll tend to start with like, what's keeping you up at night? What has you worried? Because you got to start figuring out where they are. Then, and these are always open, open answered kind of things. Then it's, where do you want to go? Where do you see yourself? What do you want to be? Because I want to start understanding <clears throat> where is it you want to take yourself and what's holding you back from getting there. From there, you then dive a little bit more specifically into things to figure out what's happening. Like what may be holding it back. I found a couple reasons. Sometimes they just don't know how to get there. So it's helping them with questions to dive into, well, what's holding you back? What may be getting in the way and so forth. If it's, they know what they need to do, but we're not sure what the order or the path or what's going on. It's helping them figure out, well, where should the priority be? And we take, you know, questions down to that level. The interesting thing I found is, and I think I mentioned this earlier, the most important question comes down to where you want to go. Really comes back. I think that North Star is something that I constantly review with a lot of people. You know, they'll see things, they'll have an idea and you'll ask, well, does that get you to where you want to go? Because there's a lot of great shiny objects out there, right? You know, we can all be squirrels and we can all chase that neat new idea, but where is it we want to be? And your happiness and your joy and whatever that is for your company is completely different than someone running the exact same company as you. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. So that's where I think it's, it's key. And then you've got to dig a little bit into problems because often once they start to highlight their problems, they may not know why it's a problem, right? That perspective. And, and so I'm asking questions there like, well, what have you done? What have you tried? Where have you looked? what led you to take certain decisions that you made to see where that is. And again, that just may be a lack of knowledge on their part. We don't know everything about everything. Sometimes maybe they have a false assumption about why something works. Maybe it's a constraint. And that's really important because then that helps shape the journey. 
How do we decide where we're going to go? How do we decide how we're going to put that puzzle together? And that creates those guardrails and a bit of that priority and order for us. So I imagine that this journey you're on with your clients, um, sometimes I imagine it's very rewarding. And then other times I imagine it's very frustrating. Um, so on like the negative end of the spectrum, what are some of the greatest obstacles you've seen that stop people from reaching their success? I'll start by saying it's not that they don't do what I tell them to do or suggest they do. It's not about that because this isn't an ego thing where I need to do that. I often see people almost inadvertently self-sabotaging themselves because they have certain beliefs about something that quite honestly, I just don't think are founded, right? There are certain people who believe, well, employees should just be this way. Okay. And often that response leads to really high turnover and not being able to get anything done. And that is their belief of the world, and that's okay. But you know they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot when that happens. Um, so I would say that a bit of a perspective or worldview sometimes can be a bit frustrating. And again, I'm not trying to say, hey, you should believe this, but you know that causes problems. I think the other thing is they have good intentions, but they can never put the time into doing what's right for the long term. So there's always a reason for why a short-term thing has to be done. And I don't disagree. There's lots of tactical things we are always having to do in a business. But even when you sit there and you try to prioritize and work things out, there's always a reason why the fire came up. But there's always a reason. It's like, okay, that's great. But if your house is always burning down, maybe we should figure out why your house is burning down and not just keep putting the fire out. And I think those situations often can be, I don't want to say frustrating because, again, I'm there to support them, right? But it can be disheartening for me because I know there are things they could be doing to help get themselves out of the way. And I think the third thing is just keeping that focus. Um, where I'll see people do something, they start to see success, things start coming in, and then what's gotten them there, that focus, that intention, they just, things blow up and they start looking everywhere. So outside of, I imagine the most common thing is we wanna make more money what are some of the common goals people want to have outside of that? And is there ever a point where you have to tell people like, that's not a wise goal for your bit? Like, is there ever that type of a conversation? Oh, absolutely. All the time. I mean, I think the nice thing that's happened the last three years is money is less of a discussion. I mean, people need money, but it's not so much about chasing the highest dollar amount that you want. The benefit of private organizations is you can choose to spend your time the way you want. You don't have to necessarily maximize shareholder value in a quarterly you know, investment statement or something. Often, the question is, what do you want your role to be, right? Where do you wanna fit into this in the future? I think that's really key. That's a big question we're always talking about because if you're growing your business, and you're interested in growth, right? You're interested in being more than what I am now. Your role may change from what that is. And you've got to ask yourself, well, you got into this because you were passionate about it and the role started this way. If your role changes to that, are you still going to be passionate about it? Or are you still going to like what you're doing? Sometimes we're also getting into what's the future? Are you looking to sell the business? Are you looking to grow it? You know, are you looking to take and acquire or take on a partner or where is it? Where do you see this heading? And I think that um, is pretty frequent in conversations we're having when we're talking. And I think the, you know, the third thing is 
what does this mean for your life, right? I probably should add to the previous question you asked about what could be a little disappointing for me at times is seeing people take a business, grow it to a point, but they're miserable. They're just not happy where it's at, which is saddening because you think about they got into this so they'd have that joy for what they're doing and control. And this, the business is running me. I'm not running the business. So that's often what we're talking about too, which is how do you take this and what does that look like? Because sure, we can grow this into something where you're going to work a hundred hours a week and you're never going to have time and business looks great. That's terrific. But like, are you going to look back and say, I wish I did this? So that's a number of the things that are frequently coming up and they're looking to get to beyond just, hey, let's just make more money with the business. So yeah, what, like if you were to list out some of those different types of growth, what would they be? So growth definitely happens on the financial side, but there's also different sides to that, right? There's just revenue. There's also net income, right? So are you looking to grow your profitability versus just your revenue? I think growth could also be on the complete other side of the spectrum, your impact. What impact are you having on society? I mean, there are organizations I know which are growing so they can support charitable work that they're doing. They have a foundation on the side, and that's really important to them, that this is a way to facilitate something like that. Obviously, size, you know, amount of services you're offering, you might want to eventually grow your business into something that does five lines of business. Maybe that won't be as profitable as what you were two years ago, but you want to be that business because you love that cross-section of what you're doing. And perhaps that full stack offering or whatever that is, is something you really enjoy and you love doing. So we, we often talk about that. And it might be, well, are you looking to expand into something else? Do you want to take what you're doing and have multiple people doing that? Because you believe you're doing it the right way, right? So I've worked with a personal trainer who said, I don't actually want to be a personal trainer in the future, but I think the reason I'm successful is that I treat people and work with people a certain way. And I would love to see the industry go this way more. So I would love to build something where the people I work with work that same way. So instead of one person doing this, there's 10 of us doing it and we can really improve health and other things. And I think that's another one of those where not so much for cause, but trying to improve the way business is done and improve or grow the, the way the service or product is offered, its quality, you name it. Do people come to you asking to work on their company culture? I have. I think culture is a very slippery slope. Because I think people don't necessarily all have the same definition of what culture is, right, for an organization. And culture isn't something you can just change. Culture is definitely a tone at the top. So I have had people come into me. If it's a true company culture thing, I probably wouldn't go as much into There's people who are far better at culture than I am. Sometimes, though, culture is really... This is one of those, they don't know the problem. That's the problem. They'll say my culture isn't there, but it's not the culture. It's something else that's behind it. So I'll get people who come in. We'll talk about it. It'll turn out it's probably not a culture. It's a process. It's something else that's not going the right way. You know, maybe you're not hiring the right kind of people that support what you want. The culture's right, but you're just not bringing in the people to support the culture. Or culture's great, but maybe you're not backing it, right? If you have a culture of inclusion and everybody's valued, and yet when anybody makes a mistake, you chop their head off. Well, the culture may be good, but if the leader's not living the culture, you don't really have that culture, right? And that's a whole nother 
problem or challenge that may be going on. So while that does come in, I tend to nine times out of 10 want to dive deeper into that because it may not be purely a culture question. So with someone like the trainer who wants, I mean, it sounds like they want their employees to have the same emotional investment in their client's outcome as they have. That's something Jeremy and I also try to instill is like, we're emotionally invested in our client's success. That's something we per like we personally want to see them succeed. We don't want to just have a transactional relationship. What's your strategy for someone like that who wants to bring people in and also pass that passion for the work and delivery to the client? Well, I love it to start with, but I also would say you have to be careful because for the trainer, they're dealing with an individual. And that's a lot easier when you're dealing at an individual level because we're humans. So I can talk with either one of you and we can have a conversation and I can understand what drives you and I can support your desires or what you're looking to accomplish. It's a lot easier to do. It's interesting with businesses because certain businesses may view you as a commodity, right? And not view or place the same value in that. So in those situations, if that's truly what drives you and truly what you want to do, when I talk to clients, it's almost as if we talk about, well, what's that ideal client? What kind of client are you looking to work with? Because if this is truly what you want to do, and this sounds risky, maybe you don't take every client. Maybe you've got to think about like, well, in your questioning or in the way you engage, do you want to better understand? Or are there questions you could ask? Are there ways you can figure out? Is this someone who's looking for a company invested in what they're doing that wants to be part of the success, understands the role we have in the community or whatever that may be. And I think it's admirable, but I would also say there's a lot of organizations out there who are just looking for a service. And while they may say on the front end, yeah, we're here, as soon as times are tough, they're going to say, oh, well, so I got a deal over here for $5 less an hour. Can you do it? And you're thinking, okay, I guess this really wasn't about that relationship up to that point. So I think it can be done. I think there's plenty of small to mid-sized businesses, particularly private ones, where you can have those relationships with people. But you know, you get into a lot of larger organizations or ones driven by their procurement departments where it's about cost or there's turnover, it's hard to really maintain that relationship and truly have that level of value. So I think it's admirable and I think it's completely possible to build businesses that way. But I think you then have to put time into figuring out how you're selecting or looking for clients. So are you saying you got to be careful because like there's a risk, there's a danger to your own business. If you over leverage yourself or you give too much, you could get burned by the client. Is that kind of? I think there's two things. One, you may end up getting clients who just don't value that. So while you're going in and putting time in for something that's valued, they may not. And now you have a mismatch of the value they're putting into relationship and you are. Um, I think you have to understand anytime you go into something, someone may not value what you do. You may put in all this extra time because you want to help them. And they're like, that's great, but we didn't ask for that. We didn't care. And so that's a risk I think you might take. But that's where I think understanding your kind of client profile and figuring out what may be some of those good questions or ways to figure that out could help avoid that, right? But I also think, look, if you are passionate about doing business a certain way, that shouldn't stop you. I think you should just go in eyes wide open that you may get burned and that's okay. Look, I've had clients who say they want to do something and don't. And then I, t and then they actually want to pay me. I'm like, no, like you're, we're not going to work out because 
I'm not going to just collect a paycheck. I don't want that. I want someone who's interested. It wants me to get involved, not someone who can just tell their board they've got an advisor. Like, I don't need the money. I'm not chasing it down like that. Let's do this the right way. And they're a little stunned. But I know for my own well-being and health, I don't want to spend my time doing that. I'm in this because I'm passionate about the work I do. I'm not going to be passionate about the work I'm doing if you're not into it and you don't want to move the business forward. So I think you've got to know that if you're doing the right things, yeah, that's going to come up. The occasional, it's like anything. Sometimes people don't pay you on time, right? Like, you know, those people who are terrible at paying you or doing whatever, they come up. But I think if you go about it the right way and you focus on it, you should. You absolutely should, you know, focus on what you believe is good and it's there. And most, most businesses, I think, can support that. So what are some of the most common problems you find when you are doing cons consultations with a business initially that just seem to be, you know, just very common stuff that a lot of growing, wanting to grow businesses are facing? So I love that you said grow because grow. <laughs> so interestingly enough, I often see they don't understand the difference between growth and the importance of scale. So growth, anything can grow, right? Heck, I can grow my waistline but that may not be the best thing for me. Growth isn't necessarily good. Um, and scale to me is how you go about building healthy systems and processes to support the right kind of growth and move in the right way, right? Organizations, you know, many organizations that I've come across got to a point, they're making 5 million in revenue, 10 million in revenue. And that may be because they have this one superstar salesperson who's got great relationships and was able to get 20 clients. That is not a repeatable model. You can't find five of those people and then, you know, quintuple the revenue necessarily. It doesn't work that way. You have to think about what's different. So what got you to where you are is not necessarily what's going to get you to the next point. And that's one of those big ones we're often talking about, right? Um, when you get to a certain size, there's whole new things you need, right? We all start, maybe we have a person who writes some of our legal documents. Then all of a sudden you get to a size, you realize I need a lawyer on staff, right? I never thought legal was going to be that critical. Now I need a lawyer or I need people who are looking after certain things that we never handled before. Or because we're growing, there's new types of businesses. And that means we have new kinds of needs that we have to look after. I think the technology side to that starts coming in because to effectively grow and scale, you almost always have to leverage some type of automation um, and technology because you're also expanding that customer base. And there's not a lot of value in having really manual, repeatable tasks being done. And that's just going to occur. But that's often a challenge because you don't necessarily know what you need. So we're often talking about that. I would say the most common situations, though, I find myself in are either an organization has a vision but has no clue how to get there. Just it's so daunting. It's sort of where do we go? They also may be, I was talking about like that awkward, <laughs> it's the awkward 12 year old who's six feet two, but still is like a child. And so they're just figuring out how to like work in this ungainly body they have. So there's these organizations that grow too fast. Um, I've had a $30 million client who still operates like a $10 million one or did when we started working together because they didn't realize you can't, you know, in the past there were 50 of you and that was fine. On one floor, you could all yell across the floor and work. Now there's 300 of you in four locations. That is not the same way to run the same business. It's completely different and you're doing different things. And I would say the final thing is we're moving, but we're stuck. We're not making progress. And that's a big one because often you get all this great momentum and I call that the strategic plan collecting dust. So I get called in, it's like, we have this great plan, look at this. 
oh, what is that? It's been on the shelf for two years. So they put all this great time in and it's just sort of like our wheels are stuck in the mud and we're spinning. Those are the three typical examples I tend to find myself coming into when we're getting there. Either they're trying to grow or they're dealing with growth that hasn't gone the way they've hoped. So what's your approach to those two situations then? Again, it starts by understanding. You know, what is it? What were you trying to be? What are you looking for? There's a lot to learn there that you'll often find. They, and I should, <laughs> the leadership, often the reasons they believe there's a problem or not why there's a problem. So there's a lot to work through there. I've had people, oh, we don't have the right staff. It's, no, it's not about the staff, probably. Most likely it's not about, really about the staff. Or we need to do this. We need to go buy some technology. No, you don't actually know what you need. So technology, maybe you will someday, but we actually have to figure out how you want to work or how you do things. Um, they're often overly complicated. So it's a lot of trying to dig into that and find out the key there being, where do we start, right? Because they all win, they're doing this and they're just like, oh, I had this great idea today. So we're off like running here. It's like, yeah, but maybe that should be like the 27th thing in order. You really don't want to start there. That's not at the core. So I try to spend a lot of time so we can determine where do we begin? Where's, where are things breaking down? And then what needs to be done first? So in some organizations I find because they've grown, they're very siloed. They don't work well across their like organizational parts. And quite honestly, whatever you try to do, unless you fix that, it's not going to matter. Unless people can be in collaborating and understanding how we work together, anything you want to put in is just going to fail. So we look to solve that problem first. Is there any problem or business situation that you think is just this, like, have you run into, oh, this is just a bad business model that can't be fixed? Is there a business that can't be fixed? <laughs> I don't think there's a bad legal business model that can't be fixed. I do think that most models, if they're built on something, they've grown from something. That doesn't mean that doesn't, there's not significant change. And the fix may be a complete change at the top too, right? Which is an interesting conversation talking to the people who have paid you to say you may not be the right people sitting in the right chairs. But most models work. Again, they may not be the right size, right? So someone may have grown with a great idea and you might say, well, I think your original model from two years ago is a great one. You've grown to here. Nothing really supports that in the market. But what you were doing before you were known for and you still have a great reputation. And if you're doing that, I think you've got something. So I think there's almost always something where you can do it. There are some, right, where I would say you've got to look at what are you doing, right? So if you go back and look at Blockbuster, right, how long were you going to, you know, do that? But if you then say, well, Netflix kind of figured it out because they were like, okay, we'll send them to you. Oh, wait, that's great. But then we'll stream them to you. But really where the money is, is making content, right? And who owns the content? So that to me, the business model is completely different. But if you look at them through their process of going somewhere, Blockbuster could have been the same thing. They just didn't move and there were some reasons and there's a whole actually Netflix or Hulu special on what happened to Blockbuster, which I find kind of funny that they wrote about their former competitor that way. And I do think there's a chance, but to your point, that model may have to fundamentally shift to become successful. But most things of any size have value and you can, you can pull something out from that. You just, you just, it may not look like what it did when you're done. 
So I'm curious about what you said when you find sometimes that the people at the top aren't in the right seat. Like, did you have a situation like that where you had to deal with that? And, and how was that resolved? Is there anything you can share about that story? Yeah, I'll protect the, the innocent on that one. But <laughs> I've had to go in and trust me, it is a very discreet conversation, you know. Now, sometimes I've had it where I've walked in, they're like, I know I shouldn't be here. That's a lot easier, right, where you're talking with them. And look, you get this sometimes where founders aren't the right person to grow something to the next point. And I think with those, you have to have a conversation around what is it? What do you want to be? What's your role? Where I've been pretty successful in that is instead of coming at them, and this is where I often say, like, I may know the problem but coming to you and telling you the problem isn't the right answer. Cause like, if I come to you and say, you're running your business terribly, you're gonna be like, who are like, <laughs> I didn't pay you to come in and tell me this. Right. But what I found, and this is the way I've used it a few times is if you built the picture of how the business should run, people typically get behind that. Like you need this. Okay. Well, if we have that picture, here are the roles. What does someone in this role need to do? How do they have to handle that? Great. Okay, so now we're looking at your role. What would that be? Oh, 99 times out of 100, they look at that and say, oh, like, that's not me, right? And now I can't tell them to leave, right? I mean, if you're an owner, it is what it is. But you can turn it to, well, I know you want to do this. Do you feel maybe, maybe you're just doing it the wrong way, but you can change. And we've worked, I've, someone's completely changed the model they did, and that was very successful. Others, you're saying, well, okay, it's a private company, maybe... Your interest is the company being successful. Do you have to hold that role? Is there another role for you, right? Because there's pride, there's saving face, there's things like that you have to work with. And we've had folks who have moved into more advisor roles for the companies they were doing so they could get out. And yes, they have a wonderful, you know, line they'll give like, oh, you know, in an effort as we grow, we're looking to bring new blood in and great. You don't have to come out and say, okay, I wasn't cut out for the job and was it right for me? You can find ways to do that with people. There are those who are very stubborn. And then it's like anything, you can bring the horse to water. At a certain point, they're gonna have to choose whether they wanna do that or not. And I'll be honest, there's been one case that comes to mind where I knew no matter what we did and what we said, they probably were not going to be the right fit. Uh, subsequently, a year later, I was done with the work we had done. I was working on some other stuff for them and not that. they move that person to another job. So I think things were in the work. We had talked about it. I had then talked to the then CEO. They had seen it. But a lot of things don't change overnight. So I do think things eventually work themselves out. And that's why clarity is important. Provide that clarity, the information where you want to go. And often I find it'll find itself there one way or the other. Have you worked with any of the multi-generational family-owned businesses where it's, you know, the old story, it's like the first generation builds it, second one basically kills it and the third one 100% destroys it. Yeah. Well, I when I work with them, I hope they don't destroy it. But <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying. Look, that's a tough thing, right? Because I have worked with several. And they are challenges because it's not just about the business, right? You're talking about family. You're talking about what happens at the dinner table on Sunday when everyone's together and what that means. That is really interesting because I've run into so many of the second and third generation who don't want anything to do with the business, but feel this pressure to do it. Like, this is our legacy. This is our family. This is what we need to do. I don't want to let my father or my mother down because they've always thought 
you know, I am not a counselor. I am not a psychologist. That is a really difficult conversation that while I will participate to people, I always encourage honesty, right? And I get that, but we all know what happens when you hold something back and like it just builds up, it becomes worse. And, you know, if you're not into something, it's probably not only bad for you, it's bad for that company, all the employees. I think the second side to that is they all look at it differently, right? What got you here may not necessarily be where it goes. But if you're the founder, that's sort of an insult to say, wait a minute, like, I know you're young and you think you got all the answers, but I was pretty successful getting us here. Who are you to say that, like, you know better and you're going to make it grow when I'm the one who actually built it from nothing? I think there's a truth on both sides, right? Because there's a lot they've learned and a lot they've done, but also probably that industry's changed and what's needed to grow, back to what we said before, is different. Um, let's not kid ourselves. The buyers are probably retiring too. And there's a whole new generation of people coming in that you would work with. So I think that could be a challenge. And so often there's the desire, intent, personal side to it you have to work with, and then the vision or view for what they want for the company. And those often don't match and what they want there because they, they weren't there when it started. So if I'm second or third generation, yes, I'm taking it on, but it, I don't have to prove why it was founded 80 years ago. I'm just here to make it bigger, right? It's not my legacy. Whereas if you're the grandfather or grandmother who did it, it is your legacy. It's about you. And someone's saying, no, no, that's wrong. Do it this way. It's kind of like, well, that's got a little bit of a slap in the face telling me what I did all this time <laughs> really doesn't matter now. So that's a lot more delicate to handle. Um, and I think for me, I just try to encourage conversations between them and say like, look, let's talk about what you want because it's really hard to come in and run a business and all the time it takes to do it well if you're not committed. If you're not committed to do it, maybe today it's a hard conversation and it's not gonna be great, but if you wait 10 years and the whole thing has fallen apart, or maybe there's another way to do it, but, and I know those are painful conversations, but think about what the pain will be in the future if you don't. Yeah, we've we've seen situations where it's like the founder of the company is very charismatic and it's almost like their personality is what mm -hmm. founded the business. And then the second generation doesn't have that. And that's always a tricky thing. It's like you either maybe find someone who does have that to take that role or what what would you say would be a good solution to that type of a predicament? I think that's an awesome question because it gets to the heart of like what makes this business valuable. So sometimes they're charismatic and that may be the difference, right? The fact that this is a great person who's out there building on relationships. Everybody loves them. They were the town mayor. They were whoever it was, right? Whatever that may be, everybody knows them. And it's a great way to grow on that. And I think remove the family side from this, right? I would ask you, what would happen if it was just a business? What would you do? If that is a differentiator and that's what add value, I would say, if you're going to keep building that business the same way, how are you going to fill that role? Ignore the fact that it's your father, your mother, or your, your son, or your daughter. It does, that doesn't matter. How are you going to fill that role? Because that is something you think is important. But maybe it's also not. And I think you have to have that honest conversation, which, is this the thing that built it? Does that still need to be done in the future? Right. To, when you grow something or start, you're absolutely right. It's how you grow it. You start to scale something. It's not built on one person's relationships or, you know, what they you know, what they do um, with things. You, you have these celebrity 
CEOs who run many companies. Yes, there's a personality and out there that does that, but that's not why it is. And at the end of the day, there's a host of great business leadership going on inside that are keeping those things going. So I would say you often have to look at where are you, what do you need? Is that going to be important to our success and have that conversation as to, is this really what got us here and what do we need to be doing for the future and where does that fit in? So it seems like a big part of your theory is just question everything. First, <laughs> I like that. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> the truth I mean, is out there. <laughs> always keep, you know, is this the right thing to do? Stuff like that. So for someone who's looking to start a business, they have an idea. Obviously, they want to come up with some kind of a business plan. Would you recommend they talk to a consultant and kind of work through or at least bring in an outside opinion on their idea before they go into it? Not necessarily, actually. I would, you know, I'm, that's probably bad for me in my own line of work, but I think it comes down to who you are and what you want to do. I would start with have an understanding of what you want to go into business doing. I would recommend to them before they ever go out and get someone, you know, determine is there a market for this? Are people willing to buy? Um, are there others out there doing what you're doing? Can you learn from that? Um, because quite honestly, maybe there's not enough business into what you want to go into, right? If you're into a certain thing and it's a very saturated market, you could spend three or four years just to get to middle of the road and be like exhausted and it's never the, what you wanted. So I think there's a lot you can start on your own. Um, and it's those key things. What are you selling? What's your value proposition? What makes you different from other people? Why would people want to do that? Is there a growing need? Is the need shrinking? Are you doing it locally? That kind of stuff. I really think you need to think about that on your own, because quite honestly, if you go with a consultant or anyone, they're going to be most helpful to you if they know what you want to do, right? If you want someone in that discovery stage, maybe a coach that could be like a business coach, someone who's more helping you do that internal dialogue and figure out where you want to go. I would also say there's a ton of great resources out there. If you're trying to start score the score organization and others provide so much around how to do this, what to look for, I would always tell someone to do their own legwork first before hiring someone. Because again, someone like me or anyone else is most effective if we know where you're going, what you want to do, because we can help you get there. If you're not really sure, tomorrow I show up and it's like, oh, I read this really neat thing and now I want to go in this direction. It's like, well, what did we just do the previous three weeks? We're going to throw that all out. I'm not helping. You're wasting your money on me. So the more you can kind of know and have that vision, the more someone can help you. So I would start with your own self-discovery. Okay, good. Um, I, th I guess, what are your plans for the future with Perils now? I know you're talking about switching roles possibly what what do you want to do moving forward now yeah i've seen a real change in what i would call the market and i think it's because what we've seen over the past few years and changes organizations are really struggling with change agency um, they're not able to achieve their vision and more and more i've seen this drive that the executive or senior leadership um have this ability to drive transformation and organizational size change or or any kind of enterprise performance improvement. That's really my background. That's where I came from. But I hadn't seen that model so much. And so I've really turned my focus to looking to see where I can help an organization, whether it's in a full-time, part-time, fractional kind of or contract role, but really get in there and focus on a day-to-day -day level, build it into the DNA of helping them through that change. Perils itself will still um, will still exist because that may be a supporting 
model I use to bring in certain things, but I also want to continue advising uh, organizations. I still advise some organizations now and helping them through these sort of generations that were those um, different points in their growth curve um, and to provide that. So Peril still advises them that. I'm probably a little less focused on project work these days and more, like I said earlier, looking at kind of a full-time role coming in, but Perils is still alive and kicking and good. And the uh, podcast continues on and excited because every day I'm meeting great people and learning some awesome things and finding out about new trends out there. Yeah. Do you want to tell everybody about your podcast? Yeah. Thank you. Um, the Accelerate to Achieve podcast is what it's called. I'm the host, which means all I do is ask questions, much smarter and interesting people come on and uh, have things to share. We're really focused on giving business owners, business leaders, actionable advice, tips and tricks that they're able to use. It helps them uh, jumpstart what they're trying to do in their business. I found there's so much great knowledge out there. Uh, people struggle sometimes to find that. So we bring on a wide range of guests, everything from human resources to technology, to legal, to dealing with people, to try to share information in a short form, 15 to 20 minutes, and uh, very much enjoy that. And I tell everyone, it's like my virtual MBA. I've learned so much being able to sit there and listen to everyone. So yeah, for those interested, it's the Accelerate to Achieve podcast. Awesome. And just as we're parting here, do you have any just last advice you want to give to a startup or struggling business who knows that they want to grow? I'd start by saying, be open to forgiving yourself. And that sounds so crazy. You're probably going to make mistakes. You're probably going to take wrong paths, but that's part of the process. And I think everyone sees the end results and they always think, well, how'd they get there? And I think if in the heart of hearts, if you talk to most people who have gone on that journey, they would tell you, oh, I had some false starts or there's some things we learned or we're not doing exactly what we thought we'd do. But all we see, it's like the whole social media trend. We think everybody's life is happy and we think all this stuff ended up here. No, that was part of where they are and how they've become. So go in with your eyes wide open, knowing you're going to have to learn. You're going to have to experience this. It's okay if you change. Just be willing to put the time in. And it's not just about those daily tasks. Put the time in to think. Put the time in to plan. And I think you'll be okay. Okay. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Stories from the Top is your guide to successful business development. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find Edge of Cinema on YouTube. Stories from the Top is an Edge of Cinema production hosted by Matthew Skura and Jeremy Schmidt. To learn more or get in touch, visit edgeofcinema.com slash podcast.